0: Scandalous. The Untold Story of the National Enquirer is Mark Lansman's newest documentary film. We'll know him from Thunder Soul, And this is just a wonderful documentary. It's basically about the National Enquirer, obviously. But with the National Enquirer, you get sex, gossip, scandals. And this is a 60-year history of this, uh, shall we say, lightning rod for journalism in, in our country. And is has its own roots in other countries with a tabloid... Uh, newspapers are in Britain and in other places around the world but this is a wonderful documentary about a very salacious sort of history but treated with uh, with a uh, a journalist eye towards fairness and the film again is called scandalous the untold story of the National Enquirer Mark landsman welcome back to film school radio
1: uh, great to be here Mike thank you so much
0: you know it, this is one of those stories that feels like it's it's kind of been something that has been roiling around in your mind for a while because you you spent a lot of time going over the history of the of the the journal. What are we calling it? Newspaper, tabloid newspaper. What do we call the the National Enquirer? Yeah, I think I think
1: it's just probably categorized under supermarket tabloid.
0: Supermarket tabloid. Yeah,
1: Tell me how totally long ago
0: you got the idea to do this, and how and what yeah. sort of what has spurred that idea. To, to move forward
1: you know the very I think the very spark of the idea happened you know sometime around two thousand and fifteen early two thousand sixteen when I, like so many of us, was finding myself incredibly dizzy in in the supermarket, uh, just staring at these various headlines screaming out to me um, from the supermarket checkout line. you know was certainly very uh, shocked, if not uh, amused to learn that uh, Hillary Clinton was um, you know hooked on narcotics or she was um, going to jail or um, wow didn't have any idea that she had six months to live and at the same time these same headlines were sort of counterpointing that with incredible messages about uh... you know donald trump as as the messiah so it was a very bizarre moment where i kind of thought well what the hell is going on here why is this happening why is this trashy supermarket tabloid that I'm used to seeing, you know, stories about, you know, UFO sightings or, you know, Larry Hagman or whatever you have on the cover. <laughs> why, is it, why is it suddenly touting a very strong, overtly slanted political message? And that was the idea. That was the first sort of thing. But I didn't think about making a film at that point. Um, that happened later after um, I had this uh, unexpected dinner with a friend of, uh, the father of a friend of ours. And that's, that's how I got the idea.
0: In case somebody doesn't know what the National Enquirer is, and we just you said a tablo supermarket tabloid, and I think in the film we we find out what the um, the founder of the uh, National Enquirer was really good at, which was marketing. The fact that he put it. In the checkout line at a supermarket is, to me, absolute genius. I, 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 we'll, we'll get into yeah. all that in a minute. But um, what was your sort of the first step towards beginning to tell the story? Was there a person that you wanted to approach or yeah. how did you go into it from, from your decision to move forward?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So in the spring of 2017, um we got an invitation uh, my wife and I to have dinner with uh, her best friend and her friend's dad. And her friend's dad is a man named Malcolm Balfour and Malcolm Um, it turns out, was one of the uh, earliest reporters and articles editors at the National Enquirer in its heyday in the 1970s. And he was even there before the heyday. He was there, like, in the early 70s. And at this dinner, he just begins regaling us with all these wild stories that sounded like an Ocean's Eleven movie. I mean, uh, espionage and bribery and global travel and... Cash, cash, cash—so much money, you know. And um, you know, we're you know finding out that you know Jackie O and you know and Aristotle Onassis are in a yacht in Palm Beach Harbor, and you know hiring a one-man submarine to go underneath the boat and trying to fix a sound device to to hear what was going on—crazy stuff. Um, and as he's ta- as he's talking about this stuff. Um at the same time, you know, our supermarkets are filled with these crazy headlines that are basically promoting the candidacy of one person over another. And that's when I thought, okay, this is a real perfect storm here. This is an opportunity. And I asked him, I asked Malcolm if he'd be interested in participating in a film. And he said, yes. And then I said, you know, well, do you think that any of your former colleagues would be interested in talking to me? And he said, I have no idea, but um, I'm happy to connect you. And then it was just like a series of sort of a domino Games like either the dominoes fell successfully in one direction with the person, or they were placed against a brick wall and they didn't move. Um, and so some people were interested in participating. Some people didn't return my calls. Um, other people returned my calls and yelled at me, <laughs> 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 um, which was interesting. Like why well, you know why should I tell you anything or how much are you going to pay me? You know I like well you know I don't work for the Enquirer. That's you know that, that that's your territory, not mine. Yeah. And then of course anybody in the current Ah, uh, AMI structure just refused to talk to us because of their, you know, their their fear of reprisal. But enough people started saying yes, and as you know from documentaries, if you get, it, it can have a domino effect. Right. In, in the best case scenario, where certain people, if one key person says yes, it opens up the doorway to five other people, yeah. and then those people open up the doorway. It just has this kind of, um, you know, exponential effect, and and suddenly. We had over a dozen people willing to talk to us on camera, and and, and we went ahead.
0: That is so true, that leveraging that you can get from, from getting a key person involved. That way, the other person that you're talking to may say, well, that you need to hear my side of the story when yeah. you're when you're talking about you know having someone yep. else on on board. Well, let's yep. go back to the to the roots because the National Enquirer started out as a New York newspaper. I think it was the New York Enquirer. Correct. Know. General Pope. <laughs> General So-Pope Jr. Jr. was the was the man who went in and bought up the New York Enquirer and then turned it into the National Enquirer, which again is another kind of uh, really bright marketing idea that he had. Yeah, but, yeah. Now tell I uh, mean, go yeah. ahead. I mean, am I giving him more credit than he deserves or is no, he you're was not. He, he go no, ahead,
1: Actually, not. I mean, this is a very this is a very uh, little known figure in American history uh, in terms of just the large impact that he ultimately had on our culture. Um, and so learning about General so Pope was fascinating to me because yeah. this guy uh, so he was the son of Generoso Pope Sr., who was the most powerful Italian-American uh, in the country, uh, people were saying, uh, in, the, in the 30s and the 40s. Um, he, his father owned a company that poured the cement for Rockefeller Center for uh, Radio City Music Hall. He also was a powerful publisher of a weekly um, Italian-American paper called Il Progresso. So this guy had everybody in his pocket. He was very influential. Generoso Pope, Jr., who was the founder of the National Enquirer, that was his son. And so when his father died, he was on the outs with his family, and he set out to kind of make his mark. He didn't have a lot of money, ironically, because he was, he was the black sheep of the family. And he got a $75,000 loan from his godfather, a man named Frank Costello. And Frank Costello was the head of a very powerful crime family in New York. Um, and so the seed money to buy the, the New York Inquirer was, was mafia money, was mafia-related. And then the New York Inquirer was a very small paper, had a circulation of like 17000 focused mostly on horse racing and betting, and was very irrelevant. And Pope had huge shoes to fill and a tremendous amount of ambition. The story goes that he was just in a car driving down a freeway in New York, New York area, and he came across a horrific car crash where bodies were bloodied and mangled and strewn across the sidewalk, and he noticed that there were just hundreds and hundreds of rubberneckers angling to see the carnage, and that's when he got this epiphany of, like, oh my God, that's what people want to see. People want to see blood, guts, gore. That's going to be my paper. And so he started to get all of these photographs from accidents and crime scenes, and he was in with all the cops and all the photographers and the coroner's offices, and that. And then he and, he and then he also decided to change the name from the New York Enquirer to the National Enquirer, and then his circulation went through the roof, and it, and it and it peaked at a million.
0: He starts to expand the readership by covering these kinds of stories.
1: Right. And because, I, you know, if it bleeds, it leads.
0: It bleeds, it leads. And, that, and that's become just such a common phrase in journalism now. And it's yeah. it, that, And that's one of the things about Scandalous, uh, the untold story of the National Enquirer, is how much of the ethos of the culture of co- how we cover stories is really very es- Enquirer-esque in, its, in the way that we do it. So that, that's that's a part of it, but I, I want to first remind our listeners we're speaking with Mark Lansman. He is the director of the film Scandalous: The Untold Story of the National Enquirer. So, at what point then in the sort of the circulation of the National Enquirer, did he come upon the idea of placing it in the checkout line at the supermarket? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, he he really had demographic migration, to thank for that. I mean, Americans were leaving cities, urban centers, and droves uh, in the late 60s, and they were moving into suburbs. And as a result, the place where they got their news, which used to be the urban newsstand, was disappearing. And Pope was, as you pointed out, a very prescient man. He was a bit of a genius. I mean, this guy had gone to MIT and studied engineering. At like, I think he graduated from MIT at like 17. He had been in the CIA and allegedly had studied psychological warfare. So this guy was a very smart guy and and had this incredibly, I'd say, keen sense of the the mind of the average American, which was ironic for someone who grew up in so much privilege. He just understood the common man. Um, they used to say that he would go and talk to his barber and say, you know, what do you want to, what are you most curious about? What are people talking about? And he would get ideas from the Inquirer from his barber. But he also knew that Americans, you know, were going to the supermarkets in droves once a week, twice a week, you know, hundreds of millions of people were going. And he thought, well, where in the supermarket is the most obvious place where those eyeballs are going to be captive? And that's when he identified the checkout line. The fact that nobody had done it before is shocking to me, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, but like, I don't know, you know that's, I think you could say the same thing about any invention, And why didn't we think of that, you know? But he thought of it, and he thought of it first, and he basically acquired that space, and then he designed these racks that would feature, sure, there would be TV Guide and there would be Reader's Digest and, you know, Ladies Home right. Journal, but his publication would be eye-level, front and center, right. and that was what it, that's what would set it off. And
0: another thing about it is, is that he, you could read the the cover of the National Enquirer, and you would get a pretty healthy amount of however you want to look at it, either entertainment and or um, news. You would, you would, you could look at that cover and get a whole bunch of the way they laid it out. There were a whole bunch of stories, and if you're so predisposed as to buy it, you'd look inside, and oftentimes it was kind of a uh, bait and switch in the stories that you would see on the cover as opposed to what you might read on the inside, but nonetheless, yeah. you're standing there for at least a couple of minutes, oh, and yeah. you're looking around, so you're going to see this thing again, yeah, absolutely, yeah. as you said, if, why didn't someone think of it earlier, but uh, nonetheless he did.
1: Cut to several decades later to the present day, and now you understand that even though the paper had a fraction, a minuscule fraction of its circulation when David Pecker uh, acquired it and certainly when the these Trump covers started to happen. Just imagine how valuable how priceless that piece of real estate was for the messaging that we started to see. That's the trajectory of that, how we got from, you know, little tidbits of gossip and celebrity news and UFOs and Gene Dixon predictions to blatant endorsement of a political of a candidate for the president of the United States that was the story that we wanted to
0: tell, and that is the story you tell. And I, I, this is the the thing that I I really appreciate about the film, and that is that you gave a really fair a- account of the National Enquirer from the, its beginning to today, till the the David Pecker. Era uh, kicked in, and that's what I think we're more or less talking about is uh, the propaganda value of the National Enquirer, as opposed mm-hmm. to the actual uh, value of it as a as a newspaper or or, or, yeah. or or for what you were reading. It was what you saw on the cover yep. of the of the Enquirer. Certainly, those last two years before the presidential election was. Yeah. Uh, I actually have I have never bought a National Enquirer, and it was about about a year and a half ago I bought one be- and just because the cover struck me just the way that you're talking about it was so pure propaganda that I was actually impressed by it in a kind of in a very uh, depressing sort of way but I, I could see what you were exactly what you're talking about well let's let's go back in, in, in the last few minutes that we have because I it is a fascinating story this is it this is a film that doesn't just Focus on the more salacious parts of what we think we know about the National Enquirer. There are a couple of key events in in American history in the last twenty five years that it was it was, in some ways, leading the the pack of journalists in. That we'll talk about the OJ uh, Simpson murder and the murder trial. Uh, right. There are a number of things, Princess Diana, things that we know that we we don't like to think of as. Being impactful on our our society, or as being important, but they are, and we uh, for for us snobs who like to thumb our nose at the at the inquiry, it, we've got to we've got to come to terms with it, don't we?
1: Yeah, no, I think what you're pointing to is really interesting. Um, you know, there are all kinds of milestones that we use to mark our lives and sort of trigger our memories. You know, people like to say, you know, where were you when dot, 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 you know, be it 9-11 or be it John Lennon's assassination or whatever it is that was But I, I think that actually those two are sort of perfect examples. You know, some of those events are world history, you know, geopolitical events, terrorism, things like that. And some of them are pop cultural. And I think the Inquirer was this interesting place where sometimes you just those all, it all got blurred, you know, like around OJ. I mean, OJ was a huge celebrity. I mean, listen, people sadly murder their spouses every day in America, right. but this was America's most quote-unquote beloved athlete, and you know, representative of a rental car company, and you know, was this, you know, he was a pop cultural icon. It was such a blown out, inflated, intense uh, free-for-all. Um, so whether you are a snob or not, or choose to acknowledge it or not, it's undeniable that that was a milestone in so many of our lives. Can't forget it. I mean, it dominated our television. It dom. And this is this is also really pre-internet in a way, in terms of sort of, you know, certainly pre, you know, heyday of internet. So we were relying on our news outlets, and in this case, the nation was turning to this formerly trashy supermarket tabloid to really kind of give them the play-by-play. Now, why is that the case? The disturbing aspect of it is that the reason why it was giving us the play-by-play is that it had the money to give us the play-by-play. And the quote-unquote legitimate news outlets couldn't compete. They didn't have the resources to put 20 reporters on the ground in Los Angeles. Maybe they had two. They didn't have the resources to pay millions of dollars photographs. You can't compete with that. And so the tabloid took over and kind of clearly beat the mainstream. And that's when you have people like David Margolick in the New York Times writing that article saying, you know, the Inquirer should be required reading in the O.J. Simpson case. And you have the editor of the Inquirer being, uh, you know, crowned one of Time Magazine's most influential people of 1997. Right. You know, that, is, that all was very unprecedented.
0: Yeah, I I but never th- yeah. I never thought I would utter the words, you know, um, journalism, legitimate, legitimate <laughs> right. journalism, and and the National Enquirer in the same sentence. Exactly.
1: But, I don't. I think you and a lot of people.
0: But but the yeah. other part of this is, and one of the things about it, this is where you you know you get it all, and you get it all in the film Scandalous: The Untold Story of the National Enquirer. But what we're also getting in the O.J. trial, what we're also getting in even in the Elvis Presley sort of his foibles and his death and Monica Lewinsky is we're getting a referendum on our politics. We're getting a referendum on, on OJ on race and on privilege and on, and on being the iconic athlete of his era. All of those things come at us. And the thing that I would, you know, I I think I can critique the national Enquirer in that it, De- it rarely gives context. It just gives you it gives you headlines, more, more or less. Mm-hmm. No, I, maybe that's not fair to its coverage of the OJ trial. But I think that we have to be able to sort of parse out what is good about being able to get to stories and sources the way that they were able to do and also to be able to discuss it as, yes, it is journalism, but d- is there something about it that we come away from it that Cause us to rethink our pers- world perspective, and I, I'm not sure that it it does very often do that, and I don't think that no, maybe no, that's I mean, not his job. I could
1: I couldn't no, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we can't you can't ever forget the wolf, and you know, reg- regardless of the sheep's clothing that it's trying to wear, it's still a wolf. It's still yeah. a tablet. Yeah. it's a tablet. It's a it's a supermarket tablet at its core. It is taking you know truth and sensationalizing it. It's blowing things up. Uh, you know, it's not to be compared to the serious journalistic publications of uh, of its era, or you know, it's it's it not it's it's not the Washington Post or the New York Times or the L.A. Times or you know uh, other places. It's right. the uh, it's the National Enquirer, and I think ultimately, at the end end of the day, um, you know, people are going to sort of look at this film and make their own conclusions. Yeah. Um, but the thing that we hope more than anything is that people will also understand that it's it's not. Necessarily about the publication itself as much as it's about our understanding of the media we're consuming. Like, how much literacy do we have about the news that we're consuming? You know, it's like people, particularly here in California and other places, are just obsessed with what they eat, right? You don't like down a bunch Mm -hmm. of fast food and expect to feel good, but you understand that if you're taking fast food, it's going to, you know, you're going to have that result. The concern is that people are just consuming news right now um, just because it conveniently fits their viewpoints, right. not because they're looking at it to inform them or shed light on where our culture is at. Right. That's a dangerous thing. It is. And I think that that's a takeaway is, you know, listen, we're all complicit in that. If we're not aware of where our media is coming from, if we're just repeating echo chamber stuff, um, then how is that contributing to a thriving democracy? And I think I hope that people will come away from this film with those kinds of questions.
0: I couldn't agree with you more uh, in, in that regard. And I agree. We we new shop now. We shop for things that that reinforce our own notions.
1: And depending on your viewpoint, you're getting anesthesia. Yes. You're getting anesthesia. Yes. And I think and I think in and that's that's something that people really need to really look at. You know, I don't. Yeah. I'm not. i am not. I'm not. I'm not a pedantic person. I'm. I I just hope that people will understand that. Media is a powerful thing, and and this day, um, you know, what they're holding in their hands and checking every second Twitter is – that's that's people wanna understand where the Enquirer is at today. The Enquirer is Twitter. Yes, and yes. you know, um, and we all get to become our own tabloid now. Yeah, you know, we get to sort of put it out there without 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 any regard for whether or not it's a fact. It's just out there in the universe, and it's out there because I'm I, and I'm retweeting it, and then right. people are retweeting it, and then ten million are people are retweeting it. And in the case of the president, you know, you've got somebody who is the single largest individual tabloid. In the universe right now, well, in the world, at least right. and uh, just kind of putting out stuff, and people are just rapidly eating it up, yeah and there's no and, and it's just um there you go. Amen. Amen
0: to, to that. You're absolutely right in everything you said. And I can't say strongly enough how I really enjoyed this film. It's such a, it's such a great watch to, to watch this film, to watch the story unfold and take you to places that you didn't expect it to go. And then at the end of it, you're left with really having to consider where we are. And I think that's, uh, it's a beautiful documentary film. Congratulations, Mark Landsman, for the film Scandalist, the Untold Story of the National Enquirer.
1: Thank you so much, Mike. So good to talk to you, man.